0: that out of the way. Our first speaker this afternoon is Oren Kerr. He teaches law at George Washington University here in D.C. Uh, Professor Kerr has been widely published in the academic law reviews and he has authored or co-authored uh, several criminal law and computer law textbooks. Prior to joining uh, the George Washington faculty, he served in the Department of Justice uh, in the Computer Crime and Intellectual Property section of the Criminal Division. Uh, before that, he clerked for justice uh, Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court. I should also mention that Professor Kerr writes regularly for the popular legal blog, The of Conspiracy. There's lots of conspirators here today. I think uh, Cato's kind of a safe house uh, for this band of uh, guys. Last April, Professor Kerr argued uh, the case of Davis versus United States before the Supreme Court, and he's going to discuss that case and trends in the Fourth Amendment area more generally. So would you please welcome Mark.
1: Uh, thanks very much. It's a great pleasure to be here and to be able to contribute uh, to the volume of the uh, Cato Supreme Court review. Uh, as was mentioned earlier, uh, one of the cases I'm going to talk about is a case that I argued and lost. And I'm going to uh, try not to make this about sour grapes. No one wants to hear how I really should have won uh, that 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 case. Although, really, I should have. Um, <laughs> but but uh, I- instead, talk about the broader themes uh, that the case Davis versus United States raised, and also another case Camretta versus Green. Uh, Camretta versus Green was technically about Article Three standing in a civil case. Davis versus United States was technically about the scope of the exclusionary rule in a criminal case. Uh, but both of them actually raised the same fundamental question, uh, which is the role of remedies in Fourth Amendment law in terms of developing the law. So the Fourth Amendment is the prohibition against unreasonable searches and seizures. And the text of the amendment says nothing about how it is to be enforced. It just says the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures uh, shall not be violated. Okay. well, it shall not be violated. But what if it is violated? What happens then? Uh, And there is a little bit of a common law history as to how the the common law right against unreasonable searches and seizures uh, could be enforced. But it's minimal. There were just a few decisions uh, relating to this. For example, if somebody had been wrongfully arrested, uh, and it turned out that their arrest was not based on sufficient cause, they could be let go. Uh, that's one, one remedy. Uh, also, if it turns out the police had conducted a common law tort, such as a trespass, the right of uh, search and seizure uh, could be asserted and would be an issue in whether the police had essentially a, a license uh, to uh, engage in the tort because, for example, they might have had. warrant so there are some common law origins of the remedies here uh, but the modern prohibition on unreasonable searches and seizures uh, uh, only somewhat resembles the common law right against unreasonable searches and seizures uh, because in part technology is constantly changing and in part because of the introduction of the uh, idea of the modern police officer Uh, there were no police officers walking the beat at common law Uh, and so today we have I think the latest number is 870,000 state, local, and federal agents with the power of arrest. Uh, Think about that, 870,000 individuals. Uh, And those individuals are engaging in millions of arrests every year, and there are constantly new fact patterns uh, in in which there's a new type of crime, and therefore a new type of evidence, or a new type of tool. Uh, The police are constantly coming up with new ways of catching bad guys. The bad guys are constantly coming up uh, with new ways of evading the police. So there are always new uh, technologies that are at issue, uh, new practices at issue, new crimes, and new evidence, which means that the development of Fourth Amendment law is a very critical, modern problem. This sets up the problem that the Camaretta and Davis cases were both dealing with, with, which is this. Uh, Every Fourth Amendment case involves a claim against the government. Uh, the claim is that the Fourth Amendment was violated. The government responds that the Fourth Amendment was not violated. Uh, well, in order to have those cases against the government, there needs to be some remedy against the government. There needs to be uh, something at issue in the litigation uh, to have the litigation occur. And there needs to be cases occurring in order for the law to develop, for course to have the opportunity to have cases and controversies in which they say, here is how the law applies. Well, if you're going to have remedies, that means that the government has to have the risk of suffering a loss. Uh, And if you're having the government suffer a loss in a context in which the law is unclear, uh, that means there's going to be some sort of penalty against the government when they may not have engaged in particularly culpable conduct. So for example, if the law is uncertain and a police officer uh, reasonably believes what he's doing is lawful, or maybe it's lawful under uh, some precedents but not others, Uh, You can understand why it's a little bit harsh to impose a penalty on the police if it turns out that a court later on determines that that conduct was unconstitutional. Uh, And so that concern uh, is motivating uh, both the Davis case and the Cameretta case and many more cases uh, in the history of the last 20 or 30 years in enforcing the Fourth Amendment. How do you minimize the costs of the remedies of the Fourth Amendment while allowing the development of the law. So the development of the law ideally would have a scheme of robust uh, 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 remedies, because the robust remedies would create incentives to bring suits, could be civil claims, could be motions to suppress. Uh, If there are lots of remedies available, you'll have lots of uh, lawsuits, lots of claims, and lots of opportunities for the courts to elaborate on what the law means. If you take away the remedies entirely, uh, then there are no cases. Uh, and therefore no opportunities for courts to explain what the law might be. Uh, and this isn't just a hypothetical concern. If you look back historically at the development of the Fourth Amendment, uh, there's almost no case law on the Fourth Amendment until the exclusionary rule is introduced in 1914. So if you're going back, you want to look at you know, all the Supreme Court cases on the Fourth Amendment from the 19th century. Uh, it'll take you about half hour to go through them. Uh, There's just a handful of them, partly reflecting the fact that the Fourth Amendment only applied to the federal government, which of course was quite limited at the time, Uh, but also reflecting the fact that there wasn't much in the way of remedies. Uh, So the more modern, uh, the Supreme Court in 1914 in the Weeks case introduces the exclusionary rule. Uh, When that is applied to the states in Matt versus Ohio in 1961, suddenly you get an influx of cases, just a massive ramp up uh, in the docket of Fourth Amendment cases. Uh, because so many people have this incentive uh, to file a motion to suppress in a criminal case uh, uh, to to try to uh, go free. Uh, uh, The incentive of exclusion is a very strong incentive for a a criminal uh, defendant. Uh, So you get a lot of cases from an exclusionary rule. Uh, Also, uh, in the 1960s, the Supreme Court uh, largely rewrote the law of civil remedies. Uh, The court both uh, dramatically enhanced the uh, civil remedy in Section 1983, created an equivalent federal remedy in the Bivens case, uh, and then took away a significant amount of what the court had just been given by introducing the idea of qualified immunity in Fourth Amendment cases. So we end up with this modern uh, judge-made law uh, in which the court has tried to create a sufficient remedy scheme largely focused on deterrence. That's always been uh, the primary rationale the court talks about when uh, uh, introducing Fourth Amendment remedies or explaining Fourth Amendment remedies, uh, but also focused to varying degrees on the question of development of the law. Uh, so uh, that brings us to the two, uh, the two cases, uh, Camaretta versus Green and Davis versus United States, each of which deal with different parts of the puzzle. Camaretta arises in the civil context, and it deals with the following puzzle. Um, when a civil case is filed under the Fourth Amendment, there are two issues that arise. The first is, was there a Fourth Amendment violation? And second, was the violation so clear that a remedy against the police officer for damages is justified? First inquiry is the merits. Second inquiry is qualified immunity. Well, in cases involving development of the law, where it's an uncertain legal question and the court in announcing the law is going to really explain to everybody this is how the law applies, uh, it will often be the case that the qualified immunity issue is clear. Uh, If the law is uncertain, qualified immunity will attach. Uh, so if the court is trying to explain the law where it has been uncertain, that means that the qualified immunity issue will be clear. It will be clear at the outset that the claim will not proceed, uh, will not the, the plaintiff will not win. But then there's this Fourth Amendment issue of what do you do with the merits? Uh, and the Supreme Court has grappled with this issue over time. In one case, Saucier versus Katz in 2001, uh, the court handed down the instruction that courts should always reach the merits of the Fourth Amendment issue first uh, in order to ensure development of the law uh, but then in a, another case Pearson versus Callahan in 2009 the court overturned Saucier and said no it's actually at the discretion of the lower court uh, or the Supreme Court to determine uh, whether they want to reach the merits of the Fourth Amendment issue before going on to the qualified immunity question well in Camrada versus green uh, the issue uh, involved uh, actually a minor a, a child who is interviewed at school uh, by a police officer about an alleged act of molestation by the child's father. Uh, The case led to, wow, did I mention child molestation? You're probably wondering why I brought you here tonight. (laughs) 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 Nothing so spooky, I promise. Um, Okay.
0: This morning, we had some sound
1: issues. We just want to Fair fair enough. (laughs) Uh, so, so the issue in Camaretta was uh, a, a, a case about whether the police are allowed to detain children when interviewing them at school. Uh, there had not been a lot of precedent on this issue. The Ninth Circuit said uh, qualified immunity attaches to the police officer who detained the child. However, we're going to announce a rule that the government needs a warrant before interviewing a child at school with a police officer present to avoid violating the rights of the child. Uh, a to my mind, rather remarkable uh, Fourth Amendment rule. And that created a puzzle for the state that was defending the police officers in the 1983 case. Uh, what do you do if you won the case? You won, no, no remedies, but you're much more concerned about the Fourth Amendment ruling than you are about, uh, about whether you won that particular case. So the state interest, really the police officers in from Camerata versus Green, try to appeal from a case that they won. They filed a cert petition and said, we won, but we want you to overturn this Fourth Amendment ruling that has absolutely no bearing on who will win or lose this, this case. We essentially want an advisory opinion on the merits of, of, uh, uh, of the Fourth Amendment claim. And the Supreme Court then had to figure out, do we have jurisdiction over this issue? Is there Article Three standing? Is the case moot? Uh, and the court concluded, Uh, THAT THERE IS GENERALLY ARTICLE 3 STANDING IN THIS PARTICULAR SITUATION ON THE GROUNDS THAT THE POLICE OFFICERS uh, NEED CLEARANCE SO THAT THEY KNOW WHAT TO DO THAT IS LAWFUL OR NOT. IN EFFECT, IN ARTICLE 3 INJURY IN FACT BASED ON uh, A THREAT OF FUTURE LAWSUITS BEING FILED. THE the LAW ITSELF CREATING THE INJURY. uh, AND THAT PRUDENTIALLY THE COURT WAS WILLING TO BEND THE USUAL RULE THAT VICTORIOUS uh, 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 PARTIES below cannot appeal to the Supreme Court in order to deal with this puzzle that the court itself had created in wanting to have qualified immunity. So if in effect, the court had created the problem of saying, uh, of insulating the Fourth Amendment ruling. And, and an opinion by Justice Kagan, the court concluded that, well, uh, if lower courts can announce a rule when they know what the outcome is, the qualified immunity attaches, then so can we. Uh, so in the future, the court can Uh, review a case in which the state parties, essentially the police officers, but often not always, but often represented by the state, uh, can appeal this Fourth Amendment issue, and as long as the parties are still interested in the case, as long as they're still similarly situated as they were when the case was filed, uh, the court will hear a Fourth Amendment case in which the outcome is not in dispute. Uh, Everyone knows what the remedy is. Everyone knows that there won't be a reversal of the opinion below. It's just to resolve uh, the the kind of locked-in circuit court precedent and adjudicate whether that was correctly decided. Uh, So that was uh, Camaretta. In Davis versus the United States, uh, now we're in the criminal context and scope of the exclusionary rule. The court considered, what do you do when uh, the court has changed the law to enhance Fourth Amendment rights? Uh, How does the exclusionary rule apply? And in particular, does the exclusionary rule apply when a search was considered constitutional at the time it occurred, uh, but is later on determined to be unconstitutional? This had traditionally been a a question of retroactivity law. uh, And the court's conclusion was that uh, all Fourth Amendment, all criminal procedure cases are retroactive as long as the conviction is not yet final. And the court had a long history of grappling with this question of retroactivity from the 1960s to the 1980s finally announcing the rule uh, that the uh, exclusionary, exclusionary rule, or at least the prior decision is enforceable, uh, the, sorry, the new decision is enforceable uh, even though the search occurred before the new decision as long as the conviction is not yet final. Uh, that then clashed with another more newly developed doctrine that the court had also developed called the good faith exception to the exclusionary rule. Uh, and the question was whether the good faith exception had essentially overturned the old retroactivity principle or not. Uh, And in in that setting, the court concluded uh, an opinion by Justice Alito uh, that uh, when the law changed, although the new decision was retroactive, that did not mean that the remedy applied, uh, and that retroactivity was about the somewhat abstract question of whether a defendant can invoke the exclusionary rule. Whether there is an exclusionary rule to invoke is a separate question. Uh, decided by the good faith exception Uh, that raises a similar issue to the issue in camaretta versus green i think uh, because the question is what's the scope of the remedy when the police officer is not culpable and to what extent can you take away the usual remedial scheme which will be that somebody files the claim and then if they win they get the remedy or at least they have a chance at the remedy The new the, the new approach by the court in Davis, uh, announced in Davis versus the United States, is that uh, a, a party ordinarily, even if they win, they get the prior law overturned, uh, cannot have the benefit of that ruling uh, because the officer was not culpable. The court then said, well, we, we realize there's this issue of incentives to bring the claim. So the idea of pulling back the exclusionary rule was you don't want to punish police officers. What about incentives? Uh, TO BRING CLAIMS TO CHALLENGE PRECEDENCE. THE GOVERNMENT, OF COURSE, WOULD GET THE BENEFIT OF NEW RULES. IF IT CHALLENGED PRECEDENCE, WHAT ABOUT DEFENDANTS? Uh, AND THE COURT LEFT OPEN THE POSSIBILITY THAT IN A FUTURE CASE IT WOULD CREATE AN EXCEPTION TO THE EXCEPTION THAT IT HAD CREATED uh, AND WOULD ALLOW THE ONE PERSON WHOSE CASE SUCCEEDS BEFORE THE U.S. SUPREME COURT TO BENEFIT FROM ITS RULE, BUT NO OTHER PARTY. Uh, AND SO IF YOU LOOK AT uh, CAMARETTA AND DAVIS TOGETHER, I think you see the court doing the same thing, which is trying to have uh, a, d- a system of development of the Fourth Amendment w- in context in which there's no real remedy. So in Camerata versus Green, the court would have litigation where the outcome didn't matter to any particular case. In Davis versus the United States, the court uh, uh, predicted or at least uh, looked forward to for the future in a world in which uh, the court would announce a new rule, but it would not apply to any case. Uh, The question is whether this is a sustainable model model of Fourth Amendment development, Uh, and my own view is that it's not. Uh, There needs to be a system of robust remedies in order to have the incentives to bring these cases, in order to have the cases and controversies uh, that are going to allow the court to announce new rules in the traditional setting of a dispute between two parties where the result actually matters. Uh, and I think the court is being short-sighted in thinking that there's some way that this will work out. There's some way in which these claims will be brought. And that the better approach would be to return to the more traditional method of allowing there to be remedies against the police. Not saying that the cost against the police, whether it's uh, in, the, in the context of damages or suppression of evidence, is a good cost. It's not. It is a bad thing. Uh, but ultimately, I think, is the uh, less bad option uh, because it enables the law development which we need in order to have certain and clear Fourth Amendment rules. Uh, Thank you. Look forward to your questions.
0: Our second speaker for this panel is my colleague David Ritgers, who is a legal policy analyst at Cato. Uh, David's research interests include counterterrorism, criminal justice, and constitutional law. He earned his law degree from the University of North Carolina. Uh, Before that, David was an officer in the Army's uh, Special Forces. Uh, He served uh, three tours in Afghanistan, and he was awarded three medals for his service there, including two bronze stars. Uh, He continues to serve as a reserve uh, judge advocate. David's going to discuss the problem of prosecutorial misconduct and the scope of prosecutorial immunity in the law. Last term, the Supreme Court was deeply divided. It was a five to four decision about how to handle a civil lawsuit against prosecutors who had failed to disclose uh, exculpatory evidence in a wrongful uh, conviction situation. So please welcome David
2: Richters. It was a pleasure to talk to you today. And uh, I think that uh, that, that, uh, the remarks I have uh, uh, are very well Uh, position following uh, Professor Kerr's uh, remarks on uh, immunity. So uh, let's just take note as we commemorate Constitution Day this year that uh, this court's decision in Connick v. Thompson, uh, which came to us in March, marked a continued erosion uh, in protecting the due process rights of defendants. Uh, As Tim mentioned in Connick, uh, uh, the Supreme Court held the municipalities cannot be held liable when prosecutors under their employ uh, failed to meet their constitutional duties under Brady versus Maryland. Uh, to disclose exculpatory information to criminal defendants. And that Conic really carries systemic implications. Uh, because of Connick uh, and the other cases limiting prosecutors' personal liability uh, and municipal liability for courtroom misconduct, there really are few penalties to deter uh, prosecutorial misbehavior. Uh, so as I said, Connick v. Thompson is the natural result of the convergence of uh, two lines of civil uh, immunity jurisprudence. Um, so visually, one with prosecutu- prosecutorial immunity, uh, starting with Imler versus Pacman, and one, on the other hand, for municipal immunity, starting with uh, Manel versus New York uh, Department of Social Services. In each of these lines of jurisprudence, an opinion from the 1970s established a precedent that uh, restrains immunity, uh, sparking a sharp dissent, noting how the majority was erring. And in both cases, the dissent has been proven right. Uh, the legal and policy outcome they warned of has come to pass. Uh, So, uh, first let's review the facts of Connick, I think we can agree that they are bad facts. Um, So John Thompson uh, was charged by the New Orleans uh, District Attorney's Office uh, in both murder and armed robbery cases in 1985 after victims of the robbery identified him uh, as their assailant, a crime scene technician. Uh, In the robbery case took a sample of clothing stained with the robber's blood. Uh, The prosecutor received the blood typing results from the stained swatch of fabric two days before the trial but uh, they did not mention or, or uh, uh, submit the blood test during the proceedings. In fact, one of the prosecutors checked all of the evidence out of the uh, police property room and checked all of it, with the exception of that bloodstained swatch, into the courthouse property room. The blood on the swatch was, uh, was type B, and Thompson's blood, even though it wasn't tested at the time, was type O. Uh, Thompson should have been acquitted with the, uh, you know, it was very conclusive physical evidence, but the jury convicted him without ever uh, hearing about the blood test. So Thompson went on the trial uh, for the murder charge uh, uh, after the, his conviction on uh, uh, armed robbery. And unwilling to testify in the murder case, lest his prior conviction for armed robbery be introduced against him, he was convicted of murder. And he spent 18 years in prison for a crime he did not commit, 14 of them on death row. So a month before he was to be executed, 11th hour saved, uh, Thompson's private investigator discovered the crime lab report from the uh, armed robbery investigation in the police files. And uh, so this blood type mismatch comes to light, prompting a stay of his execution, a reversal uh, of his murder conviction. And in 2003, the DA's office uh, retries him for murder. And then the jury finds him not guilty. So Thompson sues the Orleans Parish District Attorney's office. The jury awarded him uh, $14 million, equivalent to $1 million for each year he spent on death row. Uh, The district attorney, as we all know, appealed to the all the way to the Supreme Court. So the court relieved the municipality of liability in a 5-4 decision written by Justice Thomas. uh, The court held that uh, the district attorney's office may not be held liable for a failure to train district attorneys uh, on their duty to disclose this exculpatory evidence. Um, Now just to back out to that 30,000 foot level for a moment, public officials and their employers, in this case municipal corporations, are supposed to be liable for constitutional torts. Uh, the, uh, this was the intent of the Civil Rights Act of 1871, the law creating what we now know as Section 1983 suits. The court has said that the immunities valid against 1983 suits are supposed to be the ones that were valid at the time of the law's drafting, but the court has significantly expanded official immunity, uh, and that's resulted in the holding in conning. So going back to uh, the prosecutorial line of cases uh, I mentioned, it started in 1976 with Imbler versus Packman, where the court created a doctrine of absolute immunity uh, for poor prosecutorial functions, an immunity far stronger than the qualified immunity that police officers enjoy. Uh, Justice Byron White, certainly no bleeding heart liberal, uh, dissented forcefully, arguing (coughs) that the effect of absolute prosecutorial immunity in the uh, specific context of Brady evidence would be a disincentive towards disclosure of exculpatory evidence. And uh, he warned of, of uh, wrongful convictions. And all the ills that he warned of have come to pass. And numerous studies, I cite them in the article, uh, highlight Brady violations as one of the top forms of prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, and as he noted, the, uh, because the office of the uh, public prosecutor did not exist in the form that we know it today at the time of the law's drafting in 1871, uh, the only immunities that would be in effect uh, would be uh, immunity against malicious prosecution. Uh, and immunity uh, from defamation. But that's actually just witness immunity. That's the the immunity that all witnesses are going to enjoy at trial. Absolute uh, immunity was not among uh, those in effect at the time. Uh, So wrongly convicted defendants have tried to get around Amber's rule of absolute immunity uh, and have succeeded for functions further removed from the well of the courtroom. Uh, So when prosecutors are involved in investigating crimes, participating in a press conference and uh, making unwise statements about guilt, doing things only done by police officers sometimes. Uh, qualified immunity is the applicable standard. Uh, but for courtroom conduct, Imbler uh, retains its full strength. And in 2009, the court handed down uh, Van de Camp versus Goldstein, rejecting supervisory liability for senior prosecutors. In fact, it very explicitly uh, predicted its outcome in, uh, in Connick in that case. So prosecutors remain absolutely immune. And uh, this doctrine's strength is felt by the absence of the individual prosecutors as respondents in the Connick case. Um, So wrongly convicted defendants have tried an end run on prosecutorial immunity uh, by pursuing municipal liability, going after the prosecutor's employer. So turning to this municipal liability question, the court said in the Minnell case that municipalities are only immune uh, where there is a custom or policy that creates the constitutional violation at issue. So single instance admitted violations, uh, such as the one present in Conic, are not cause for municipal liability because there's either an insufficient connection between this custom or policy and the violation at issue, um, or an insufficient pattern of violations to put the municipal employer on notice for the need to train uh, employees on their constitutional duties. Well, the dissent in that case that, uh, that has been proven correct was by Justice Stevens. And Justice Stevens did not join the majority in Minel's announcement of this uh, custom or policy doctrine. And he later dissented in one of the uh, several municipal liability cases involving police training in Oklahoma City do Tuttle. And as Justice Stevens points out in his Tuttle dissent, had Congress intended to create a custom or policy requirement uh, in the Civil Rights Act of 1871, it would have done so. And in fact, it was unremarkable at the time uh, for municipal corporations to be held liable for actions in tort, uh, for violating the rights of, uh, of citizens. And the very same Congress that passed the Civil Rights Act of 1871, the 42nd Congress, also passed the Dictionary Act, currently codified at 1 U.S. Code 1, which defined municipal corporations as persons who could be held liable in court. Uh, So this is really a distinction for Congress to make prospectively, not for the court to make up for them retrospectively. And uh, and Stevens rightfully uh, calls this judicial legislation of the most blatant kind. Regardless, this policy or custom doctrine has been applied uh, in several Supreme Court cases involving police officers, and that's what gets cited uh, in Connick. And in one of these cases, uh, city of Canton v. Harris the court hypothesized that a, uh, a, a, quote, deliberate indifference, unquote, of a municipality toward constitutional violations, the rationality for liability in the lower court cases in Honig, could be found where a city deployed a force of armed police officers without instructing them on the constitutional bounds uh, on the use of deadly force. Now, while this hypothetical was provocative, uh, a police force running amok, shooting its citizens willy-nilly. It does very little to help us analyze the facts in conning. Uh, and Justice Thomas says so, and he's right. He says, uh, you know, to distinguish um, this real prosecutorial misconduct from the hypothetically bad uh, police force, he repeats in many ways uh, that pr- prosecutors simply are not police officers. Attorneys are part of a regulated profession. Uh, they have graduate degrees that impart uh, specialized training. They face potential ethical sanctions for misconduct in the courtroom above and beyond what the law requires. Well, I agree with all of these distinctions, but the conclusion that should flow uh, from this is not excusing prosecutors from liability, but holding them to a standard of conduct that prevents constitutional violations. In other words, uh, a full reconsideration of the constrained liability doctrines uh, that the court has created over the last several decades that failed to deter prosecutorial misconduct, both the uh, prosecutorial immunity and the uh, municipal liability. Um, so on a side note, i also say that it's, it's striking that uh, the court is willing to, uh, to keep litigation over police misconduct with regard to municipal liability uh, in reviewing their training, and inserting federal courts into reviewing what is constitutionally sufficient training, essentially infantilizing these officers. But the same court is, uh, is happy to rely on a new police professionalism. Uh, when rolling back the exclusionary rule and knock an announce violation of Hudson versus Michigan. In fact, I would characterize this also as judicial legislation of the most blatant kind. But, uh, just to review the uh, work incentive structure at work here, we should note that uh, police officers also have an obligation under Brady to provide exculpatory evidence to prosecutors who are in turn supposed to make this evidence available to the defense. So. Let's just insert a police officer uh, in, acting as an investigator for the district attorney's office into the fact pattern present in Connick. Suppose this police officer was tasked with uh, transporting <coughs> evidence from the storage locker at the police station to the one at the courthouse. What if this officer, and not uh, the miscreant prosecutor uh, in the Thompson trial, had intentionally concealed the evidence of uh, the exculpatory blood swatch that would have prevented Thompson's Uh, conviction from both the prosecution and the defense. There's nothing inherently prosecutorial about uh, transporting evidence and maintaining an evidentiary, unbroken evidentiary chain of custody, in fact, is a core uh, responsibility of a police investigator. Well, this police officer could be sued under current uh, jurisprudence. It's safe to assume that his plea for protection under qualified immunity would fail. Uh, The standard doesn't apply to the plainly incompetent or those who knowingly violate the law. Yet a prosecutor in the same situation, one who makes the blood test results unavailable to the defense while in transit to the courthouse, who further consummates this omission with the constitutional sin concealing evidence in presenting the state's case to court, remains absolutely immune. Both Imbler's absolute prosecutorial immunity and Minnell's policy or custom requirement bar the victim from holding the prosecutor or his employer civilly liable prosecutors willing to get their hands dirty and personally violate citizens' rights remain shielded from civil liability, as are their employers. This, we're told, is the cost of doing business uh, with regard to criminal prosecution, and we're supposed to be comforted by the prospect of ethical sanctions and criminal prosecutions that can deter uh, prosecutorial misconduct. Well, as in most cases, it didn't happen in Connick's case, Uh, the chief culprit had since passed away and one of the other prosecutors involved received a public reprimand from the state supreme court no suspension of law license or other penalties and the special grand jury convened to scrutinize the prosecutorial misconduct in Thompson's trials was shut down one day after it was convened uh, by the very uh, district attorney's office that was being investigated so the bottom line is that uh, police officers have a Brady duty to give exculpatory evidence to prosecutors They are uh, liable for failing to perform this duty. Prosecutors have a duty to seek out Brady evidence in police files and a further duty to disclose Brady evidence to the defense, but they're absolutely immune. And while prosecutors are technically subject to ethics, sanctions, and criminal prosecution, this almost never happens. Uh, In fact, the one prominent case we have is referred to in academia as the Mike knight exception. So the prime mover in in revealing evidence to the defense, the prosecutor, has no civil immunity incentive, or civil liability incentive rather, to disclose the evidence. So as I argue in this article, the court has entirely thwarted the intent of the Civil Rights Act of 1871 with regard to prosecutors. As the Inver Court noted, the tort doctrine dictated by the Civil Rights Act of 1871 was a standard of civil liability that on its face admits to no immunity. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court has flipped this on its head, in essence creating a standard of immunity that admits of almost no liabilities. Thanks.
0: Okay, our third speaker for this panel is Dr. John Eastman, who teaches law at Chapman University. Between 2007 and 2010, Dr. Eastman served as the Dean of Chapman Law School, but he stepped down from that post to run for the Attorney General of California. He's the founding director of the Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence, a public interest law firm affiliated with the Claremont Institute. Prior to joining the Chapman faculty in 1999, he served as law clerk for Justice Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court. Dr. Eastman is going to discuss the case of Bond versus United States, an unusual criminal case involving a federal statute that was passed to implement the chemical weapons convention. Uh, in terms of his article for the review, I think he gets the prize for the best first sentence uh, of, of all of the articles. It's very provocative. It starts off, game on! <laughs> I should also mention that Dr. Eastman filed an amicus brief in the case, which Cato joined because, as he will explain, the case raises very important issues uh, involving uh, federalism and standing. Please welcome John Eastman.
3: Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here and be part of this uh, 10th anniversary volume. My uh, compliments to the publishers and the editors, uh, uh, not just for this volume, but for the entire enterprise. It's changing the course of our thinking uh, on Supreme Court jurisprudence. David, thank you for your service. Uh, I've always been uh, appreciative of those uh, men and women in, in, uh, in uniform, but my son entered the Air Force Academy this past summer. I'm even more acutely aware uh, of, of the sacrifices that people make. Um, you know, it's, it's not uh, frequent that I'm on the far left of a panel at an academic conference in, in the country. Uh, and and, and uh, I don't always see eye to eye with folks here at Cato, most of the time we do, but in the areas where we don't, it usually involves criminal law or executive powers in war. Uh, so I was a little hesitant to get involved in a criminal law case before this panel, but this is one we are all in full agreement on. Uh, and because it involves the limits on the enumerated powers side of the federal government. Uh, so let me talk about Mrs. Bond's case and why I think it is much more significant than than the, the headlines of the Supreme Court's term have, have given it credit for. Uh, the facts are fascinating. We talk about bad facts in the Connick case. These are great facts if you're coming at this uh, uh, issue from, from uh, our perspective. Mrs. Bond lives outside of Philadelphia. She was married. She also had a best friend, a uh, female friend. She was ecstatic, enthusiastic, very happy when she learned that her friend was going to have a baby, Uh, that that, uh, delight turned to outright anger when she discovered that the father of that baby was her own husband, not the woman's. Um, And uh, uh, Mrs. Bond worked at a chemical plant, um, and she had access, therefore, to chemicals. I think we need to revise the old adage. Don't mess, uh, hell has no furry like a woman scorned. I think we need to change it to don't mess with the husband of someone who works in a chemical plant. <laughs> um, so Mrs. Bond borrowed some chemicals from her plant. Uh, uh, she sprinkled them on the door handle, on the car, in the mailbox uh, of, of her husband's lover. And uh, there were some chemical burns that resulted and she was prosecuted, uh, as well she should be. Uh, but she was prosecuted not by the local state district attorney, but by the U.S. attorney, uh, not for the criminal battery, but for violating the statute in federal law implementing the International Convention Against Chemical Weapons. <laughs> so, yeah, so this, um, <laughs> all right? that's what makes this good facts. She <laughs> challenged the constitutionality of that statute. Uh, the district court ruled against her in a perfunctory way that said this was a treaty, the statute was implementing a treaty, therefore it's constitutional. (coughs) Now, from that, and that's the thing that makes this case so interesting. We take a little detour before it gets to the Supreme Court, the Third Circuit says that Mrs. Bond doesn't even have standing to challenge the constitutionality of the statute under which she was convicted. Uh, And the Third Circuit had invited uh, uh, argument on that question, Uh, tempted by the siren song of the Third Circuit invitation, the U.S. government said, yes, she doesn't have standing. Uh, And the Third Circuit agreed and and threw the case out, or threw her, her defense out. Uh, but the Supreme Court granted cert and the U.S. Department of Justice quickly changed gears It said of course she has standing and then they tried and this, the question that was presented was whether she has standing to raise the state's sovereign interests under the Tenth Amendment uh, uh, to an expansive power claimed by the federal government. The Third Circuit had said because it's the state's interest not the individual's interest and Mrs. Bond is not the state she doesn't have standing. The Supreme Court dispensed with that in a very important and thorough opinion by Justice Kennedy and a unanimous court, holding that the Tenth Amendment, as many of us have been long arguing, is the flip side of the enumerated powers doctrine uh, that is there not just to protect separate, separate sovereign states, but to guarantee individual rights by dividing powers between the levels of government. And so anything that exceeds enumerated powers and therefore intrudes on the authority of the states, is infringing on individual liberties, and the individual who is prosecuted under that clearly has standing to raise those those claims. Uh, And if you wanted to read into an opinion tea leaves about the importance of that federalism structure and leaving the state's to their criminal law to do the things that states were supposed to be doing, and read into that the health care litigation on its way there, you might find a lot of interesting tea leaves from Justice Kennedy's opinion. Um, but that's not what I find most interesting in this case. Because this involved the treaty statute, we now have a direct case challenging with the best facts you can possibly imagine, a century-old conflict in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence about the role of the treaty power, and it is this. In Missouri versus Holland, way back at the turn of the last century, the Supreme Court said that we could, uh, Congress had power to have a migratory birds uh, treaty and regulate uh, state action dealing with migratory birds because it was implementing the treaty. And there's language in that case that suggests that Congress can do anything uh, as long as it's authorized by a treaty, that the treaty power is not otherwise confined by the limits on powers that Congress otherwise has. Um, in the 1950s, in a case called Reed versus Covert, the Supreme Court said, though, even the treaty power is confined by the prohibitions that exist on the government in the Bill of Rights. And so we've got this question presented. Do the, does Reed v. Covert's a standard? that Bill of Rights protections can't be overturned by treaty, Uh, does that also apply to the enumerated powers doctrine and the limits on powers of the federal government that are other than just their prohibitions? And as I said, there's language in this old case of Missouri versus Holland that suggests that all you need to qualify for enumerated powers uh, authority is that your statute is implementing a treaty. And it's evident in the way the district court perfunctorily uh, dispensed with Mrs. Bond's challenge to her conviction here. This was a treaty. Therefore, the statute implementing the treaty is a valid exercise of Congress's power. It's by definition necessary and proper to the implementation of the treaty. End of question. No additional discussion about whether it's otherwise within the powers of the federal government. uh, and so let me let me back up one second. Let's take as a given in this case that if the federal government were just to pass, oh, say under its commerce clause authority, this very same statute, it would be impermissible. There is no limit that the chemicals moved in interstate commerce. There's no requirement that the person attacked with the chemicals have been in, in interstate commerce or moving in interstate commerce. There's no even requirement that uh, in the aggregate all of Mrs. Bonds and, and her uh, and people like her all over the country who want to attack um, their husband's lovers with chemicals that in the aggregate it doesn't have a substantial effect on commerce. That requirement isn't on there either. And so we have to take as a given that the statute stand alone would not be valid under the Commerce Pository. So the fact that we have this treaty doesn't necessarily make it valid. And here I think Justice Kennedy gave us Uh, a a very important uh, 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 tip uh, on how we ought to think about that. uh, On remand, he says the question to be presented on remand or to be addressed on remand is not whether she has authority to raise a 10th Amendment challenge. He says the question is whether it's a valid exercise of the necessary and proper means to implement some federal power. In other words, he put it squarely within the enumerated powers doctrine. And I, I, you know, now, do the other justices on the court that go along with him uh, agree with that interpretation of it? I I suspect when it comes back up on the merits, we won't have a unanimous opinion. But but the the importance of this can't be overstated. It seems to me uh, uh, if we allow the treaty power to do anything, uh, that to authorize Congress to do anything at once, the whole doctrine of enumerated powers, which. The Supreme Court hate Review and the Constitution Center has been designed to try and help restore. Uh, the Lopez Revolution was successful. The entire public interest law movement on our side of the political aisle has been designed, first and foremost, I mean, we have lots of different uh, areas, but first and foremost to revive that notion that the federal government is one of limited powers. If we can, by treaty, eliminate the limits on federal power uh, that, that come flow out of the enumerated powers doctrine, there's all sorts of mischief we could do. Uh, so we just had a governor in california He turns out not to have been nearly as popular as, as people thought he was going to be um, suppose we entered into a treaty with with his native country of austria uh, for some reason people somehow think that mr schwarzenegger might still have a shot at, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the national executive office but for that little pesky line in our constitution that says you have to be a native-born citizen Austria takes great offense at at their greatest, uh, their native son not being eligible for the office of presidency in this country. Could they enter into a treaty where we agreed to ignore that clause of the Constitution so that Arnold Schwarzenegger might one day have an opportunity to be president? Uh, uh, Under this broad reading of Missouri versus Holland that we've been living with for a century uh, and that Mrs. Bond challenged, uh, the answer would have been yes. Or how about the, 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 uh, the uh, facts in Lopez itself, uh, gun into a school? What if we interpret the International Convention for the Fe- Protection of Children to say that uh, you have a, an international human right by treaty not to have a gun in your school? Does that mean Congress is authorized to adopt the very statute that the Supreme Court struck down in, uh, in, in Lopez? Or there are a number. In 2003, uh, HHS Secretary Tommy Thompson said that the United States would support the anti-smoking international treaty, which included as a provision a ban on tobacco ads. That would run counter to our First Amendment. Can they do that by treaty even though they wouldn't be able to do it by direct legislation? Or how about the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination? Article 2 in that prohibits uh, prohibits, uh, racial discrimination, but Article 1 defines racial discrimination to include racial preferences. So racial preferences are prohibited, uh, which is probably a good thing, right? Uh, But what if we turn it back the other direction and we say uh, racial preferences are required by treaty, uh, despite rulings in our country that would say that they are unconstitutional? Does the treaty authorize them? So you you have this conflict in the existing this existing body of Supreme Court president. And I think Mrs. Bond's case on the merits allows the court to try and grapple with that. Are we going to limit uh, the treaty power, uh, the, the, the restrictions on the treaty power only to those prohibitions that are contained in the Bill of Rights or in Article I, Section 9, or the other prohibitory rights? Or will we recognize that the enumerated powers doctrine itself forms a limit on the scope of federal power? Uh, and the answer to that, it seems to me, from the Founders' perspective, is clearly, yes, the, the two are part and parcel of it. In fact, the, the, the structural limits were even more important than the Bill of Rights. We didn't have the Bill of Rights. Um, uh, but but the, the, uh, the Court now has an opportunity to confront that. Justice Kennedy's opinion, reminding us uh, of the significance of individual rights and how, uh, as a consequence of why we have this federal st- structure, I think is about a good place to start addressing uh, that question of enumerated rights and whether we can ignore, excuse me, enumerated powers and we can ignore the limits on them uh, simply by the expediency of going a treaty route or an executive uh, power route, um, uh, his his language gives us the best opportunity, I think, to confront that question that we've had in decades. So Mrs. Bond, um Whatever the merits of your beef with your husband's paramour, you have done us all a great service by giving <laughs> us an opportunity, an opportunity uh, to topple, if not Missouri versus Holland itself, at least the broad ruling or the broad understanding that has been read into Missouri versus Holland for almost a century. Thanks very much, Mrs. Thomas.